Please take your Bibles and turn in them to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. The text is also printed for you in the bulletin. And if you'd like, you're welcome to follow along there as well. We've been reading through the book of Exodus together. And and today we start a new and important section in Exodus as we get to the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments is itself the beginning of a portion of of several chapters here of hearing the law of God. This is an important section of of the book of Exodus. And it will reaffirm to us one of the things that we've been saying all along, that the, the theme of Exodus is God is not just freeing a people, but he's forming a people. He has already freed them out of their captivity in, in Egypt, and he's redeemed them. He has called them to himself and brought them to him here at Mount Sinai. And, and this begins a key part of God forming his people, shaping their lives, teaching them his word. And so what I want to do today and, and each of the days that we go through these Ten Commandments is to read the entire passage of the Ten Commandments so we hear them all in context and hear them together. So I'm going to read chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. And let me ask if you're able, would you join me in standing as we hear the reading of God's holy word? Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray again. Father, this is your word. 
that you have given to us by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit for the good of your people, that we might learn the character of our God, that we might learn the kind of life that is pleasing to him, and that we might not only see your character in the Old Testament, but that we might be driven to our Savior Jesus Christ in the New Testament, that we might know his mercy for sinners, and that as we see our own sin, Lord, that we will cling to our Savior, trusting not in our own righteousness, but in his and his alone. Lord, do this good work in our hearts, we pray, through the power of your Spirit, with full conviction. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I want to look at each of these first three verses that start this passage that gives us the introduction in verse 1, the preface to the Ten Commandments in verse 2, and then the first commandment in verse 3. The introduction in verse 1 is, is simply this, and God spoke all these words, saying, just those first three words, let's give our attention, it's so easy to skip over those, but it says, God spoke these words. I wonder if you've ever been in the presence of someone who was so highly respected and so well thought of that when they spoke, people stopped to listen. I can think of several men like this that, that I've known in my life. Some were, some were professors, others were ministry leaders. Uh, but they were all people who had a reputation that was well known for being godly, humble, wise, thoughtful, discerning people, such that when, when they entered a room, people would stop what they were doing and turn to listen to that person. They might have not come with something prepared to say, but we all knew that, that we were in the presence of someone we wanted to learn from, that, that we simply were willing to stop what we were doing and listen. I always think of one guy in particular who, who was not a um, leader of a, a large ministry. He was not a, a, a pastor or anything like that. He was an ordinary man, but he was so known for his godliness and for his wisdom that just to be in his presence, I always felt like it was a great privilege to listen to him, to learn from him. These were people who, who didn't command the room simply by force of personality or by volume of their voice. Rather, it was what they were known for in their life that people were willing and anxious to listen to them. As we start this chapter and it says, God spoke all these words, we need to stop and, and pay attention and realize what exactly are we listening to in this chapter. Studying the Ten Commandments, we're not merely looking back at a dusty old code of conduct. It's not something we can simply easily write off by saying, well, that was then, that was Old Testament, that was law. We are not under law, we're under grace. And that is true. We are not in the Mosaic Covenant anymore, but nevertheless, these are the words that God has spoken to his people. And, and we need to be very careful to start here and to listen to these as the word of God. I think... One thing that often happens to us when we read portions of the law, whether it's the Ten Commandments or other portions of the law, so often we, we read a law and immediately our little internal lawyer pops up and goes to work. And if we've just read a law that we do fairly well with and we're pretty comfortable with and we think we've got it under control, then our lawyer begins to justify us and then we pat ourselves on the back and we become smug in self-righteousness. 
if we've read a law that maybe we come under the conviction of and we know we're not good at, our little lawyer will go to work and immediately begin to justify us and to argue on our behalf, to, to explain why this law doesn't mean what we thought it meant or why perhaps we're no longer under this law. But I'd like to ask for these next few weeks as we're studying these commandments, we need to put our little lawyers on mute for a while. We need to set them aside so that we can hear what God is saying in these commandments. After all, as we've said, one of the purposes is that God is revealing through his law his own character to his people. He's drawn them close to the burning mountain just as he drew Moses to the burning bush to reveal himself, to give a picture of his character so that Israel now may learn who is this God that they are following. We remember that at this time, they didn't know very much about the Lord, far less than, than we know considering we have the entire scriptures. At our disposal, they had only begun to learn the character of the God who had called them out of Egypt, who had rescued them, who had redeemed them. The law is meant to reveal the character of God. It's meant to give us a picture What would a society under the lordship of God look like with his justice, his mercy, his love being displayed through his commands? And at the same time, we remember that the law is meant to humble us. It's meant to show us our sin. Sometimes it's going to show us sin in areas that we had no idea we were even sinning in. That's what the law does. It opens our eyes. It takes off our blinders to help us have a new perspective of how God sees our lives. And yet, in that, we have to remember what we said last week, that we read the law by faith. So that when we read a law and we feel the conviction that that we know that this is a law that is pointing out our sin and it's bringing it to mind, that what we are to do is not to self-justify, not to explain away either the law or our sin, but as Christians, we are to humbly admit that sin and to rest firmly in the finished work of Christ. And to remind ourselves at every step that, yes, although the law will expose us as sinners, we don't despair because of that. We don't despair. But as Christians, we read the law, we see our sin, And it actually brings us to a closer communion with Christ. The more of our own sinfulness we know, the greater our communion with Christ can be. Because we will have a greater appreciation for all that he has done for us at the cross, for the size of the load of sin that he has carried and that he took the punishment for, that we deserved. And so that little lawyer will keep us from appreciating that. And so we need to put him on mute. Be willing to see who you are, your own character, your sin. And remember this great line, if if Satan, the great accuser, tries to use the law to make you despair, to make you feel further from Christ, there's a line from an old song. It says, Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. We can remind ourselves of that glorious truth, yes, Satan may accuse us of sins that we have done. We know our sins, and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. God does not remember our sins. He has separated them from us as far as the east is from the west. And so, one of my goals for myself, as well as for us as a church, is that 
in this section of chapter 20, we will be a church that is continually hungering more and more to hear the word of God, to desire the word of God, to read it and to allow it to speak to us, into our hearts. Isaiah says, one of his great chapters, he says, uh, the Lord is speaking, here is the one to whom I will look, he who is contrite and humble in heart and trembles at my word. That is the one the Lord will look to, the one who comes to his word willing to listen, willing to hear the Lord speak to us. And so it's introduced in verse 1. We see the preface in verse 2. This is the preface to the whole Ten Commandments when the Lord starts to speak. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, that is a really good preface. I know sometimes we can pick up a book and the preface is not important. We can just skip over the preface. We may not skip this preface. This is a vital one for us to hear because without it, we could end up reading the entire law differently. But the very first words that God says to his people is this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. You hear what he says? Several things there. He says he is the Lord, that is, he is the sovereign one over all creation, the God of heaven and earth. But he is the Lord, your God. Your God. He is introducing himself again to Israel and reminding them that he is their covenant God. That he is not one who stands far off, not one who is a stranger to them, not one whom they have to approach and, and to somehow appease his wrath. No, he is their covenant God. He is the one who has already called them into a relationship with himself. That this is not the beginning for them. And he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. See, this reminds us again what we've been saying all along in Exodus, that God is the one who redeems his people before giving them the law. So many people miss this. And therefore, they get the idea that, that Christianity is all about following rules and laws and living up to a certain standard and about what we can do for God. When in fact, Christianity is first and foremost about what God has done for us in Christ. If we simply start with the Ten Commandments as our, our beginning point of studying Christianity, we'll get it turned around. But we have to remember God introduces it saying, I am the one who has redeemed you. I have saved you. It was by the blood of the lamb put on the doorpost of the houses that caused the destroying angel to look away and to pass over their houses. And he says, I have brought you graciously by my mercy to myself. And none of your sin, either in Egypt or in the wilderness along the way, could stop me from bringing you to myself. You are my people, God says. And he loves them. And only now, after saving them and after redeeming them, does he begin to reveal his law to them. We have to keep the order straight. It's the same thing we see throughout the New Testament. It always tells us first what God has done for us in Christ. And says, therefore, be not conformed to the image of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But first, Christianity is first and foremost about what God does for us, not what we do for God. So we have the introduction that these are the words of God that we are to listen to. We have the preface. Who is this God? He is the Lord your God, the one who has redeemed you, the one who has saved you, the one who has brought you 
here to Sinai, out of slavery. And now we have the first commandment that I want us to look at this morning. And it's very simple in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, even in that commandment, there's a really important insight that, that I don't want us to miss. Because I remember sometimes as a, as a kid, I would hear this command and be just a little confused. Because we learn, don't we, throughout the Bible, that there are no other gods. That there is one God and one God alone. And yet the command says, don't have other gods before me. Well, how could we have other gods before him if there are no other gods? And the answer, of course, is that there are no other gods with a capital G, no other true gods, no other real gods, but there's an infinite number of little g gods, gods of our own making, gods of our own creating, gods of our own imagining and our own devising. And the commandment then is to those as well. Do not let those gods stand before the one true God. And these other gods that we devise and that we imagine, here's the truth, those are not merely in the the pantheons of faraway nations that we read about in history books or that seem so exotic to us, but they're in our own lives. Anything that our heart is prone to turn into an idol in our own life can be a God that we might put before the one true God. John Calvin said so well that the human heart is an idol factory. It's an idol factory capable of taking any good thing in this world. And that's why it's tricky is because our heart takes good things, gifts that the Lord has given us, but it takes those and it turns them into idols that we live for, things that we take meaning from. I, wanna, I remember a, a story I heard one time of a pastor who had visited India. And of course, he, he tells that in India, you just walk down the street and you see idols everywhere, like actual little carved idols, totems, Buddhas, whatever it is, uh, with little you know, candles set up before them, these little places with statues that you worship, and there's idols everywhere, and yet he met this girl, and he was talking to her there in India, and he told her that he was a pastor from the United States, and she said, oh, you're from the United States, I visited there once. There was idolatry everywhere. <laughs> and he said, wait, really? You, I, I see idolatry everywhere here. You, you mean you went to the States and you saw it? there? And she said, yes. Because as a, an outsider, a foreigner who, who was not so used to everything that we see, she looked around and, and she saw that we are people who, who worship all sorts of things. We saw sports stadiums that we spend billions of dollars on. See, our society doesn't build cathedrals anymore, at least in the traditional sense. We build sports stadiums. Public funding, it takes community efforts to do these things. And she said, anything you spend that kind of money on and treat with that sort of devotion and, and people make these pilgrimages from all over the country to visit them, to pay their devotion, to see, to be a part of the worship that goes on there. Or she would describe the just malls, malls that, that our, our people would make treks to go to to visit uh, as halls of consumerism or our gyms that, again, we, we spend so much time and money at. And, and what she saw that we are often so blind to is that there's all sorts of things in our lives that, that we're just used to. We, we've seen them our entire lives, and yet we're tempted to take these things 
and give them the kind of devotion that only the Lord should truly receive. And maybe those aren't the things that, that get you. Maybe it's other things. But we are tempted in our heart to turn all sorts of good things into idols and into gods that we worship. Martin Luther described it this way. He said, what does it mean to have a god? What is a god? He said, a god is that from which we expect good things and from which we are to take refuge in our distress. That now I say it, that upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your god. He says it's those things in which we take refuge. Those things in which when everything else in life is falling apart, we run to this and we say, here is a place of refuge for my soul. Here is a place where I can find rest. Here is a place where I am comfortable and welcome and received. Here is a place where I can go and everything feels comfortable and it restores my soul. He says those, those are the things that our heart has made into a God. Those things from which we expect good to come to us. Upon which you set your heart See, the truth is, it's easy to read a commandment like this and say, have no other gods, okay, we're good on that. We think this is easy and that perhaps the real trouble is not going to come till later in the list for us, but that's not true at all. In many ways, this is the hardest one. In fact, Luther also made a very keen observation about the first commandment. He said, you never break commandments two through nine without first breaking the first commandment. He said, this is at the root of all the Ten Commandments. And that in order to break one of the other ones first, you have somehow have to break the first commandment. Because at, in every sin that we commit, we can always look at the sin under the sin. There's something at the root of that that has led us astray from, from Christ and has set our heart on something else. He would say, for instance, uh, if we break the eighth commandment about stealing, he says you never steal unless first your heart has set itself so firmly on some vision of what the good life is that you begin to believe you cannot attain worth and significance in life unless you have this thing. And there's no other means available so that you steal. Now, stealing was breaking the Eighth Commandment, but he said before you did that, your heart was breaking the First Commandment long before. Or again, if you break the, the Fourth Commandment against observing the Sabbath, he would say, Perhaps you've break, broken the fourth commandment, but, but what's at the root of that? There's a root sin in which somehow you, you've uh, settled on a vision of life in which it required you to, to work on the Sabbath day and you weren't allowed to set it aside for God. Why? There was something else that you were serving, some other God, some other ideal that you serve. And so you're actually breaking the first commandment first. I think of it also in terms of Proverbs 3.5. This is a great verse to help expose what we are trusting in. The things that our hearts have taken to be gods for us. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. See, there's two alternatives. There's two alternatives and these become real to us often in times of difficulty that we have two options. We can trust in the Lord with all our heart. What does that mean? It means to act as though he's God, right? That's what you do with a God, is you trust it with your heart. You give yourself to it. You rest in it. You find security in it. You say, 
It, this and this alone is what matters. But there's this second alternative, and that is to lean on our own understandings. Isn't that so much of a temptation for us? Because it's difficult to walk by faith. We want to walk by sight. We want to walk by sight. We want to know what it is, and yet part of acting though as though God is our God is recognizing that he is sovereign and wise and good and loving, and we're not. And therefore, we can trust him. Part of treating him as God is being willing to rest even in the mystery of his providence and acknowledge that, Lord, if you are God and you are good towards your people, then I don't need to lean on my own understanding, as tempting as that may be for me. I don't need to do it because you are a good and loving God and I can trust you. temptation is so strong to want to lean on our own understanding. And what are we doing there but putting our understanding up as a God in front of the one true God? He calls us to submit and to treat him as though he is God. To trust him. To obey him. That's what you do to a God is you trust and you obey and, and you submit and you humble yourself. We functionally turn our understanding into an idol when we refuse to trust God to be our God. Now, we do it in lots of other ways as well. I think one of the ways that we help understand and help see what we're making into an idol in our life is simply asking, what do we desire out of life? What's our main goal that we're working for? What's this vision that's sort of overall in all of our thinking of what the good life is that we are aspiring to, that we really want to attain someday? Because that is our God. That will be our idol. See, remember how the, the shorter catechism, it starts with this very thing. What is our chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the chief end of man. That is the one thing that we live for, to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. Now, if we are to replace that answer with anything else, then we are walking in idolatry. If we can look back on life at the end and look back on the decisions you've made and, and say, I did that in order to give glory to God and to enjoy God, that's the goal. That's the goal. If we replace it with something else and say, perhaps our definition of success and, and man's chief end is, to, is limited to thinking in terms of our career advancement, it's limited to thinking in terms of financial advancement or financial comfort, or taking the desired vacations every year, if those are the things that are controlling our decisions and they're controlling the way we spend our time and they're controlling the way that we uh, use time with our family, then what we're doing there is functionally we're putting the gods of money and comfort and career in front of God. You know, we look at the, the ancient societies and they would literally be offering human sacrifice to these false gods and we think, how barbaric. I'm so glad we don't do that anymore. And yet, we also look at our society in which career advancement becomes one of the, the primary idols of our society and we see so many people who neglect their families. We say, what is that except offering their children and their families on the altar to the God of career, saying, I will sacrifice 
meaningful time and meaningful involvement in their lives if only I may be blessed by the career gods and I will get ahead and I'll be financially secure. We continue to make offerings on the altars of the false gods. Maybe for you it's not career. If success is defined in terms of being in the right relationship with the right person or having the right kind of family, the right number of children, sometimes it's the god of love, the god of domesticity. We're willing to sacrifice our standards on the altar to that God. We're willing to sacrifice our morals. Maybe it's different for you. Maybe for you, the chief end of man is to be well-respected and well-thought of by your coworkers, by your peer groups, by your family, by your parents, by your fellow church members. And that's all you need. And if you can attain to the position of of respect and popularity, then that is your chief end. And you make all your decisions and and base financial decisions and life decisions towards working towards that end. See, these are very familiar to us, and a lot of these hit home for us because this is the air we breathe in our culture. This is the way we live. We have grown up in it. And so it takes time for us, and it takes hard work for us to learn a new definition of success. And that to understand the chief end, not just as a catechism question, but as a true guiding principle in life that our chief end that we're to live for is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And if we can get to the end of life and look back and say, in all our significant decisions that we had to face, we did that which would give glory to God, would help us to enjoy God's provision and his goodness in our lives, then we will say we've been faithful. See, these are, these are hard questions because all of these things that we've mentioned, they're all very good things. These are not bad things. These are not evil things. Career and family and respect and love and comfort and financial security. These are good blessings that God gives to us. And so it's, it can be tricky, right? But to say, when does it cross the line from being a good thing that I enjoy as a gift from God? To say, now it's crossed the line to being an idol which controls my heart. Sometimes we simply need to ask a a diagnostic question. If you were offered the promotion that you've been working for for so many years and you finally were getting this big break, but you knew that at the same time taking it would mean long hours away from family, it would mean giving up opportunities to serve in church, it would mean giving up opportunities to use the gifts and talents God has given you to serve others, what do we do? What do we do? They're not easy questions. But I I would suggest most of us are so ingrained in the system of ladder climbing and achievement that it's hard to even imagine passing up an opportunity regardless of the costs. Regardless of the costs. And yet, here's my desire for us is to say sincerely that the ultimate value in life, the ultimate good thing in life, that which we are living for is to live a life faithful to Jesus, to use the gifts and the talents that he's given to us for his glory and service of his kingdom, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, to have a family, to raise a faithful family, and to say that wherever that point may be for you individually where the rubber meets the road, to say, am I content to let something else go by? Content to let a promotion go by? 
content to get less recognition from others, if it means I have the freedom to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We live in a society that says, seek first the promotion, the validation, the respect, the money. And yet, God calls us into his church where we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, I want us to especially see the grace that is in this command. Because this is one of God's most gracious commands to his people. There's nothing arbitrary about any of God's commands. There's nothing arbitrary where God said, "Mm, here's a list of rules, live this way. God gave them to his people because he knows what is good for them. Right? We say that to our children, maybe they don't believe us, but God really knows what is good for the hearts of his people. And he's directing us in that. How do you think the Israelites would have heard this when they heard God talk about other gods? They have just come out of Egypt, which was full of other gods. And do you remember what we said about all the plagues? That the plagues that God put against Egypt were specifically designed to expose and obliterate those other gods and to show the Egyptians that the gods they worshipped had no power. They were not real gods. They could not save. And that's the truth. The magicians were humiliated. Their snakes got eaten by God's snakes. And now God is saying to his people, don't worship these other gods. And you think he shouldn't even have to say that with the demonstrations of his power and the demonstrations of the futility of the idols. It should be obvious to the people, we shouldn't make false gods. They have no power to save. See, and that's exactly what God is saying to us that the gods that our hearts make, that we are tempted to worship, that that draw us in, he's saying those are weak. They're ineffectual. It's futility to worship these gods. They have no power to save. They have no power to give satisfaction in life. They have no power to give contentment, joy, happiness, meaning, fulfillment. They offer none of that. It says don't give your hearts to those things when they are completely powerless and void that's what we're doing. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Jeremiah confronts the people again with the same thing, and he says it this way. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water, and they have hewn for themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You see how he's saying the same thing. He says, you have forsaken God who is himself the fount of living water and in turning your back on him, you have decided instead that you are going to worship a broken cistern, one that holds no water. What good is a broken cistern? The whole point of a cistern is to hold water. He says it's broken. There's no water in it and you're, you're taking that completely void, completely empty, completely worthless. See, the grace of this command is to say to our hearts, that we are so prone to being foolish, so prone to wander after things that, that promise everything and deliver nothing. And yet I, I want us, again, to remember that we read this law by faith. We read the law as coming to us from our Savior, Jesus Christ, not from a God who's trying to humiliate us, not from a God who's trying to put us down. This comes from a God who loves us if we read these laws rightly, if we hear them rightly, if we're able to temporarily mute our little internal lawyer 
it will undoubtedly uncover some sin in our lives and it will expose our sin. I hope it does. But if we're living as those who who are saved by the grace of Christ, if we look to our Savior and realize that all our sin was placed on him, all his righteousness is ours, then we are free and able to be convicted of sin without despairing. See, those, those don't have to go together. We can be convicted of sin without despairing. If we, if we despair, well, that in itself is idolatry. That means we're trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in our own goodness. But if we read as those saved by faith, then when we have our eyes open to, to our own sin, that can actually lead to greater communion with Christ, not less. Knowledge of our sin can lead to greater communion with Christ, not less. I also want us to remember, in our Sunday school class in a little while, we're going to be reading Revelation 21. The new heavens and the new earth. Where God says, I will dwell with my people. I will be their God. They will be my people. God is now preparing us for this state that he is preparing where there will be no more idolatry. That was the promise throughout the entire Old Testament. I will be your God. You will be my people. And yet, the Israelites continually, over and over, failed to live up to that standard. They turned to other gods. They sought out the gods of the nations. But he says, that great day, I will be your God. I and I alone. You will be my people. Because you will be those who have washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb who have been made pure by the work of Christ, whose hearts have been rescued, whose hearts have been redeemed, whose hearts have been taken away by the gracious work of Christ. He takes our hearts away from the idols and he brings them to himself. This is the good news. This is what God is preparing for us. An eternal weight of glory in which our hearts no longer hurt us by turning to the idols. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you will, by the power of your spirit, now give us ears to hear. And would you use this word? Would you impress it on our hearts? Would you help us to fix our eyes on Christ, on him alone, to see our Savior and to be drawn to him? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to...